Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ross Melzer, EU Affairs Director at Euractiv, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Euractiv debate towards a mandatory EU system of due diligence for supply chains, realities and consequences. Our event today is supported by VDMA. They are the association representing the German mechanical engineering industry. I'd like to introduce you to Teresa Dominguez. Teresa will be moderating the audience Q&A today. Uh, welcome to you, Teresa. Good afternoon and welcome. When writing questions in the Q&A section, which you can find at the bottom of the chat box on the right side of your screen, please be sure to identify yourself, keep your questions short and concise, and indicate to which panelist you are addressing the question. We also encourage tweeting. So join the online discussion on Twitter using the hashtag EADebates. Hashtag EADebates. Enjoy the discussion. Thank you, Teresa. So, an EU system of due diligence for supply chains. To kick things off, I'm going to give a brief overview to bring everyone up to date. At the end of January, the European Parliament's legal committee adopted a report call calling on the European Union to legally require companies to protect human rights and the environment in their supply chains. The move is intended to increase EU scrutiny of companies over the impact their operations have on the environment and people globally, not just in the 27-country bloc. The report urged the European Commission to propose mandatory due diligence requirements on environmental and human rights risks for all companies and sectors established in the bloc. And this would also include state-owned undertakings and the financial sector. The Parliament will vote on the proposal tomorrow after yesterday's debate in plenary. It aims to shape legislation on sustainable corporate governance, which the Commission will then propose in the second quarter of this year. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about an EU law that will require companies to monitor, identify, prevent, and remedy risks to human rights, the environment, and governance in their operations and business relationships. And most importantly, this will include their suppliers and subcontractors. The report proposes that when risks arise, a company should make the details public along with measures to address it. National authorities uh, will check that companies enforce the rules and could impose penalties after having investigated complaints. The proposal would give victims of human rights violations the right to take EU companies to court. Now, some of the issues that we'll be discussing today is whether companies, and I do mean companies of all sizes, can actually influence actions and behaviors of third parties. Whether the international codes of conduct many companies already have for supplier contracts are sufficient or not. And what impact might this new legislation have on European companies? To discuss all these issues this afternoon, we are joined by Lucrezia Busa, who is member of Commissioner Rendner's cabinet at the European Commission, Lara Walters, Dutch S&D member of the European Parliament. Lara is a member of the jury committee and, of course, worked as rapporteur on the report to the Commission. 
Um, Winand Quaid Fleek, who is vice president of the Employers Group at the European Economic and Social Committee. Tim Gore, head of low carbon and circular economy program at the Institute for European Environment, uh, Environmental Policy. Ben van Pepperstraater, who is business and human rights expert at European Centre for Con Constitutional and Human Rights. And last but not least, Bertram uh, Kavlat, who is vice president of VDMA, and Bertram is also a small business owner himself. Uh, welcome to you all. I've asked uh, each of the panelists to kick off with a very short introduction. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to turn to Lara, who led the debate in Parliament yesterday. Lara, in 60 seconds, what, why do you think this legislation is so important? Um, I think this legislation is important because we still see far too many headlines in the newspapers of things going wrong when businesses um, have value chains that are expansive, when businesses do business around the world. And I think that we need to address those. And so you can think of examples like Rana Plaza, like the oil spills in Nigeria, or now um, the workers in Qatar that have died. I hope you can still see me, by the way, that have died in preparation for the World Cup. Um, so we need to do something about that. And for that, it is important that we go from voluntary standards that currently exist to mandatory standards. And I think that in that way, we as Europe can take our responsibility and can leverage our 450 plus million consumers. Thank you, Laura. Very uh, succinct. Uh, Lucrezia, in, in 60 seconds, what's the Commission's main thinking uh, behind this proposed legislation? Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, yes, as the Commissioner said yesterday, yesterday in the debate in plenary, where he welcomed the report by MEP Walters, whom I'd like to thank and congratulate once more for that. Uh, the Commission is working on uh, an initiative that will, um, that will include, on the one hand, a mandatory due diligence duty, and on the other hand, a clarification on director's duty of care to clarify the director's in their duty of care should look at the long-term interest of the company and take into account also the uh, impact of the company's activities on the stakeholders, such as the workers, the customers, and other stakeholders uh, around them. And uh, the commissioners will look, therefore, at uh, um, risks that may raise uh, from the company's activities and may concern harm to the environment, environmental, uh, sorry, uh, human rights, and also uh, labor rights. And why this is important? It's important because we want to foster not only within the union, but also outside of the union uh, behaviors by companies that would um, contribute to, uh, the, would enable the union to fulfill fully its commitment when it comes to the environment, respect for the environment, like uh, the Paris Agreement, but also when it comes to um, human rights and labor rights. It's about making sure that we respect um, both inside and within the union, the same commitments and the same bias. I know we'll come back to many of the points that you've just, just raised there. Um, Winant, um, what, what's the general view from the employer's perspective? 
Um, I think uh, the first thing is that it is a, a very important subject and one of the most important legislative exercises taking place actually. It builds on the UN guiding principles and on the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises, which were established in 2011. And since that time, a kind of cult cultural revolution in companies has taken place and many developments also have uh, taken place in the field of due diligence. But more can and more should be done. Uh, the end result, however, must be workable for business. And that is where we have a big concern because we are convinced that the Parliament's proposal is simply not workable for business. Basically for four reasons. Unclear definitions, catch-all approach of value chain suppliers and stakeholders, open and vague norms, and draconic sanctions. Uh, basically, companies are made responsible for everything. Of course, we have to keep in mind that there are three positions now. There is the Parliament, there is the Council, and there is the Commission, and a lot of discussion will take place. We hope that in the end, a constructive and workable solution can be found for business, but a very serious impact assessment is needed before any legislation is established, especially because business is very much weakened after the crisis, and we have to carefully reflect before burdening it with extra administrative charges. Thank you. Thank you, Winant. Uh, Tim, how is this legislation going to help the EU's environmental ambitions? Yeah, well, th thanks very much for the invitation and, and greetings to all of the fellow panellists. Uh, I think the important thing to remember here is that the um, a large part of the EU's environmental impacts take place outside of the EU's borders. Um, we know, for example, that between a quarter and uh, a half, according to the European Environment Agency, of our impacts take place beyond the EU. Um, if we all, everyone in the world consumed like Europeans, we'd need around three planets to sustain us all. So um, it's really vital to address the impacts beyond our borders in our supply chains. Um, if we just look at deforestation, we know that the EU is one of the world's biggest importers of forest risk products. It's you know, probably the highest per capita importer of those products. Its imports are responsible for a large share of uh, global deforestation around the world, for example. So this legislation is critical to addressing those impacts beyond our own borders. But I think it's also very important to say that um, uh, to address both the environment and the human rights impacts in a coherent horizontal package, because often uh, these are uh, environmental and, and human rights impacts are two sides of the same coin. And it's vital that if we want to build a just and a sustainable economy in Europe, that we address those two types of impacts uh, together. Thank you, Tim. And uh, Ben, your, your 60 seconds, what impact is this legislation going to have on human rights, do you think? Well, first of all, thanks for inviting us and for assembling such a great panel. Uh, for us, the purpose of this legislation is first and foremost to prevent human rights abuses and impacts and environmental impacts and government impacts. So the whole purpose is to change the way that businesses operate so that those impacts are prevented. And for those remaining impacts, it is indeed important that victims can actually seek remedy of uh, uh, for those impacts that actually occurred. So in that sense, it's also important that any legislation uh, is accompanied by 
uh, a strong enforcement uh, mechanism, including uh, a liability mechanism. But the purpose is to prevent, to avoid impact. That's what we all want in the end. Okay, thank you, Ben. And finally, um, Bertram, how does industry, or more specifically a small company like your own, see this legislation? It depends on what we make of it. Uh, and thanks you, thank you for the opportunity today. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the living example of, of a subject of this le legislation, running a company of less than 400 employees, exporting 75% of the turnover in 93 countries, purchasing goods from 17 countries, 460 different suppliers, and 8,000 different components that we purchase all over the world. So we're typical SME, exporting SME. Uh, and uh, for thus, I'm a typical member of the mechanical engineering industry. And speaking also as a president of the Association of the Mechanical Engineering Industry, the VDMA, uh, I speak for many, many companies like mine. And let me please state, we fully support as VDMA the objective of the legislation. We want to protect human rights. We want to stop child labor and other abuse. And we also, and especially myself as a passionate European, we believe that a European legislation is much better than a patchwork of national regulations. But please let us take account of the limitations and the, and the limited abilities of an SME company. Uh, so let's discuss about how can we make this legislation SME friendly. So as said before, uh, an SME, we need to have a better definition of human rights uh, because uh, um, we are too small to check the biodiversity, the Paris Climate Treaty and so on. So definition is a problem for me. Uh, I would like to have SMEs and not capital market oriented companies to be excluded. Uh, if this is not possible, please limit the definitions of what we have to do uh, uh, in the underlying due diligence or the depth. So uh, also I would like to to avoid civil liability, and I would like to have the responsibility of the governments as well. So please help us in a wide listing of countries where we can work. So SME friendliness with my six persons in procurement. Okay. Thank you, Bertrand. Um, listening to these opening statements, there, there seems to be very little doubt about the noble political objective behind this upcoming legislation. None of us want to see those pictures of burnt down textile factories or child labor on, on coffee plantations. But I do put it to the policymakers, to Lucrezia and, and Lara, and this is a question that has been asked by industries we've just heard from, from Bertram. Um, have you got the balance right? In other words, in achieving this important political objective, can we be sure that business models of some companies, notably SMEs, will not be negatively impacted? Uh, Lara, your, your thoughts, please. Um, the thought that just went through my mind was, I'm, I'm not a, a sorcerer and I, um, would struggle to understand why the EPP um, would be so supportive of this deal if we had gotten it so wrong in terms of that balance. Um, 
and uh, the 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 things that were mentioned uh, by Vinant in his opening statement, um, I would like to uh, to respond to briefly um, because I think that that they were a little bit of a, of a caricature. Um, I think that um, uh, <laughs> in terms of the, the 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 vague norms that we that we would have, those vague norms are there because what we want from companies is proactiveness, and what we don't want to do is to be overly subscriptive. So of course you need to find a balance there. But businesses have also told us we will be burdened by overly prescriptive, overly micromanaged rules for us because we know our supply chains, we know our sectors best. Um, the same, I think, when it comes to, to the, the different definitions, what we have done is we have said, okay, um, we understand that there is a special need for SMEs, um, but SMEs have not come as a group to me and said, look, we need to be exempt from this. What they have told me is we need measures that are tailored, we need measures that are proportionate, but if we were to be exempt, then that would actually create problems for us further down the line because more and more also in terms of bank financing, we need to prove what we are doing. That is not the only reason that we have included them here, but that is one of the reasons. So what we have done for SMEs is we have said, look, SMEs that do face risks in their value chains need to be included. SMEs that are listed need to be included. But even then, those SMEs, if they are convinced that they face no risks whatsoever, they can issue a statement that essentially exempts them from this, where they essentially explain why this shouldn't be applying to them, and then they can leave it there. Um, so I really struggle to see how we wouldn't have gotten that balance right. I think we have gone all in for proportionality, for making sure that businesses uh, can have um, uh, the, the right amount of discretion in the steps they undertake. We ask them to be um, we ask them to prioritize, so to look at the risks most salient to them. But at the same time, what we've done here, um, which hasn't been mentioned yet, is we are asking them um, for an, or we're introducing here an obligation of means rather than result. Um, and what that means is we're asking for their best efforts. We're asking them to do what is reasonable, what can reasonably be expected of them. We are not asking them uh, to manage the very um, uh, the very last square millimeters of their supply chains. Um, so again, I really struggle to see how we would have gotten the balance so wrong. Thank you, Lara. And, and I will obviously uh, let the other panelists uh, respond to that and win and come, come, come back to you. But before I do, I'd like to hear from the other policymaker on the, on the panel, Lucrezia. Um, the balance, is it right? On our side, we are still working on the initiative. So what I can say is that we will, uh, um, we are aiming to have the good balance, and uh, we are doing uh, our best to um, to get it right. And I'm sure we will get it right at the end. So we can speak. I'm happy to speak again uh, and answer these questions. One, uh, once also the commission proposal is uh, has been complete, completed in uh, in some months on. Um, what I can say already, though, is that we are working, as I was saying, to uh, strike the good balance. And this means, on the one hand, to have uh, an initiative that uh, uh, achieves the objectives that I mentioned before, that it is effective when it comes also to the enforcement mechanism. But on the other hand, it is also uh, balanced when uh, it comes to the impact that it has on the various European companies and on the European economy as such. When we speak about SMEs, this will translate in particular to um, attention that is given to SMEs in terms of 
looking at um, also at the risks that these SMEs can um, uh, can have can face and their risk profile and then also uh, making the political political choices based also on the risk profile. It's uh, due diligence, as we know, is a risk-based assessment. It's, um, it enables companies to, uh, to control uh, and mitigate the risks based on their uh, best, best processes and best efforts to put in place uh, such processes. And it is our and in this framework, it is normal that companies that present a higher risk will be treated um, treated differently from those that do not present uh, any risk. And in this case, the same. I see. I think also from um, what MP Walters was explaining before me that the, car, uh, the current Parliament proposal goes in the same direction. It has a risk-based approach. When it comes also to the SMEs. We are also uh, striving to make the, to achieve the right balance also when uh, defining uh, and targeting the possible provisions and the possible obligations that uh, they would have to meet. And on the other hand, there is also thinking uh, about how to support them for this transition and through uh, possible guidance, uh, administrative uh, support as well, help desks, but also through a possible funding that would uh, enable them to meet the objectives of, um, of this initiative. As I was saying at the beginning, the way we look at it is in a comprehensive way. It's an initiative that should enable the uh, union as such, the private sector and the public sector to achieve our um, uh, to achieve our goals and to, make, to be sure that we respect our fundamental rights and values. Thank you, Lucrezia. Winand, uh, let me come back to you now, because in your opening statement, you spoke about unclear definitions. You talked about a catch-all approach. Now, we've just heard from Lara and Lucrezia that they firmly believe there is good um, proportionality uh, in this legislation. Lara spoke about exemptions, and both, both Lara and Lucrezia mentioned that this is about best practices, best efforts, rather than actual results. So, um, Winner, what, what's your response to what you've just heard? Yeah, well, um, I would be most happy if uh, the presentation I gave was just a caricature, as uh, Lara said, but I'm afraid it is not. And uh, the reason is that indeed there is clearly a lot of goodwill in the proposal to make it proportionate and to make it reasonable. The point is that the norms that are in this proposal are mostly taken over from the OECD guidelines, where they are voluntary norms. So there is a lot of discretionary room, there is a lot of openness. But here we are talking about mandatory norms. Suddenly they are mandatory they, uh, and they can be, you can have a, a legal liability based on these norms. But these open vague norms are not usable for, for, for this purpose. There is legal uncertainty because there are no criteria to interpret the open norms. Uh, there is the idea that the Commission would come forward with, um, with guidelines. That is one step of uncertainty of interpretation. They should be implemented in national law. They should be interpreted by national judges. They should be interpreted by national competent authorities. So there is legal uncertainty all around. At the same time, 
the norms are very, very deep huh? um, on, on, on the supply chain, for example, you basically are responsible for everything to the latest plastic or, or leather or metal uh, detail that is used somewhere in, in, a, in a complicated products. And there is a very wide room for stakeholders to, uh, to go to court uh, against companies. And these uh, stakeholder, uh, uh, the, the rights for stakeholders are also uh, interpreted in, um, in, a, in a very broad way. And um, so you are confronted with a vague norm. You don't know how the judge will interpret. You know that stakeholders can be very aggressive in uh, suing you. And you don't know what to do as a company. So it is the, the fact that the voluntary norms, which leave room for interpretation, suddenly becomes mandatory, can be interpreted by judges. You don't know in which direction. And there are draconic sanctions, which creates this extreme uncertainty and problems for companies. Thank you, Wynne. We'll, we'll come back to this question of liability um, a bit later in the, in the debate. Bertrand, I'm going to bring you in, uh, in in a second to give a reaction to what, what has been said. But before I do, I'd like to hear from both Tim and Ben on uh, their view about whether this legislation is fair and balanced and should be applied to all companies. Uh, Tim, if you'd go first, please. Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, the first thing to remember here is that something's got to change about our economy and our, and our business models uh, of all companies, because we all started by saying there are endemic human rights violations in supply chains all around the world in products that we all buy and consume here in Europe. And there is widespread ecological devastation around the world as well. We're in a moment of ecological crisis. So something's got to change. We can't actually just carry on um, as with business as usual. Um, and I think it's also fair to say that all companies will struggle. You know, th this isn't a light undertaking. We're not asking or expecting companies to just have a new box ticking exercise. I think even the largest companies in Europe have got to um, take some uh, to change the way that they do business in order to comply with this proposed legislation. It, it's not straightforward and it won't be straightforward even for the biggest uh, companies. But that said, it, it doesn't mean that complying with this legislation is the end of the world or that it will um, ruin the economy. I mean, quite the contrary. I think that what we're, what we're expecting with this type of due diligence approach is that companies get to know their supply chains. Uh, they are more transparent about their supply chains. They think about the risks in those supply chains and then they prioritize. You know, take a, I mean, I understand very well the, 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 the problems that small and medium-sized enterprises might face. But I mean, think also about some of the biggest companies, supermarkets, which is one of the sectors that I've done some work on due diligence with. They've got thousands and thousands of uh, supply chains all around the world. Of course, that's a daunting prospect. Think how on earth can we go about um, understanding the risks in all of those different supply chains? But there are processes, there are tools for prioritizing, for boiling it down, for making it workable, for getting started. And that would be just the same for SMEs. And I would say that if you leave SMEs out of uh, this approach, the risk is actually that you leave them behind in the transition to a new type of economy. We know that citizens around Europe want to have more traceability. They want to have more knowledge about where their products are coming from. They want to know that their products are not causing deforestation, that they're not uh, linked to human rights violations. And increasingly, you're going to have companies uh, that are complying with this due diligence 
due diligence approach. They were able to make those claims with some basis, some grounding. And SMEs are going to need to be able to do that as well to compete. And I say, if anything, you know, that's a that's um, an area in which some SMEs may have some advantage. Thanks, uh, Tim. Ben, uh, fair and balanced. What are your thoughts? Um, I think that uh, at least uh, the uh, proposal that is uh, debated in the parliament, as, as Lara also said, uh, if you see the debates that happened yesterday, there was a, a broad cross-party political support. So it means that everybody uh, ranging from the center-right to the uh, radical left, I think it's, um, identifies with this way forward. And that way forward is indeed risk-based as both Lara and Lucrezia have emphasized. So you look at the severity of the risk and then look at what are the measures that are appropriate to the severity of the risk. So that means that obviously, whether this impacts SMEs, I, I don't think is the right question because um, let's say the baker around my corner or the bar in Hungary will not necessarily have the same severity of risks in its operations and supply chains as let's say the diamond trader in uh, Antwerp, which is still a small outfit when you look at uh, the number of uh, people working there, but might have much more uh, significant risks in its uh, supply chain or, or uh, downstream. Um, so you need to look at each company in its own specific context and in its own specific uh, risk profile. So in that sense, going from risk-based uh, norms that are flexible makes a lot of sense. I think what's also uh, important to emphasize, and I think Renant already referenced that, is that a lot of the think work on how this could and should work has already been done. The UN guiding principles and the OECD guidelines were uh, respectively agreed and updated in 2011. Uh, so we had a decade of, of companies and especially forward-looking com companies already integrating this thinking in the way that their bu uh, business is uh, working, making maybe some amendments to some of, of, of their business um, decisions and their business models in order to better align with the guiding principles and the norms. And what we now see is that actually quite some individual companies are saying, we need a legislation and we actually need a liability mechanism because we currently are at the limit of what we can do and to remain uh, competitive. But where we need to go is actually much further. That's 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 how we interpret the UN guiding principles and the OECD guidelines. But in order to to go all the uh, all the way, we need a stronger floor to stand on. And so we do want to assure that our direct competitors have the same obligations. So in that sense, obviously, a law with uh, an enforcement mechanism, a sanction mechanism. Is, is important, not necessarily to go sanctioning everybody, but to make sure that that laggard 5% also gets aboard with this whole transformation in the way that we are doing business. Thank you, Ben. Um, Bertram, we, we've heard from several of the speakers that a lot of thought has gone into this when it, when it comes to the impact on SMEs. So I do want to hear your reaction to this. And I'd also be interested uh, to hear if you think there's an argument for different rules for uh, different companies. For example, should SMEs uh, be asked to verify only their first tier suppliers as opposed to all of their suppliers? So, Bertram, back to you. 
Thank you. I, I hear the words, but I do not find those words back in the legislation proposal. Um, and I'm, I keep being reminded to the Charlie Chaplin movie, The Great Dictator, when there's a misfire in that large cannon and the general says to the next man next to him, uh, go defuse the bomb. And he turns to the next person next to him, say, now you defuse the bomb. And the end, it's small, poor Charlie Chaplin, who has to go and put his fingers on the bomb. Uh, my company will be the one who has to put their fingers on the issue. And uh, uh, there is prosecution looming, personal prosecution. Uh, and then again, uh, Lara, I don't find your words that the means is more important than the result. I will be prosecuted according to the legislation uh, proposal, according to results, not if I had nice means. And uh, when you say not the last millimeters of the supply chain should be checked, this is also not in the proposal because there's no limitation uh, to the tier one supplies, for example. And um, uh, no, we are not the bakery. Um, but we are also not the t-shirt uh, producer. Mechanical engineering is employing more than 3 million employees in well-paid jobs uh, in Europe alone. Uh, and we offer well-paid well um, uh, jobs all over the world in our international value chains. And again, uh, we recognize human rights. And very often we have our own code of conduct already. We have implementation of human rights in our contracts. But that is not... Uh, going with looming prosecution. And um, you should think how it should work for me. Uh, with my own company, we have six persons working in, pros in, in procurement. Uh, we have 460 suppliers in 17 countries, six persons. Can you imagine how many times we are able to really visit the companies we purchase from? And please don't tell me, uh, don't tell me uh, that the new legislation will make me to get to know my suppliers or my supply chain. Uh, I think we know a supply chain quite well, but we have limits on what we can we can check if we're there. 460 uh, suppliers, uh, it takes with traveling time two to three years to visit every single supplier once a year, at least once a year. We might see everything nice and we will set up the audition, uh, the, the, the due diligence systems, but we have Maybe no influence what happens in the two and a half years between that. So no, uh, I would like that the European Union takes over their share of the of the uh, responsibility, like helping us with the whitelist, because I cannot, with my company, uh, decide whether, for example, is China a country which is okay? Is only a certain region of China okay because of the uh, of the Uyghurs, or is is a country where we have capital punishment okay or not okay? How do we so, deal with the United States? How do we deal with China? Help me with definitions. Show okay, me Bertram, what I have I'd, to put. I, I think, thank you. That's, uh, your, your point is well made. And I'd like to give Lara and Lucrezia the opportunity to, to respond to that. And um, your point is really about the practicality 
of, of this. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, export-driven companies and the, the model of an export-driven company is largely based on diversity of suppliers. And as you say, it's not unusual for uh, these companies to have several hundred suppliers in different parts of the world. And it's just not possible for the CEO or anybody else to visit them all in, in a year, let alone uh, in, in three years, let alone one year. So, um, Lucrezia, Lara, the practicality of this, what, what, uh, what's your response, please, Lara? Apologies, that was bound to happen. Um, gosh, that was a whole range of things that were, were mentioned there. So I'm not sure I can get through all of them. Um, but maybe to start with um, a, a bit of a visual uh, example, as the previous speaker gave um, when mentioning Charlie Chaplin, what I think about when I hear his remarks there, I think about that great cartoon of the New Yorker where there's some children and a businessman in a ripped suit sitting around a campfire and the businessman is telling them something along the lines of, yes, we destroyed the planet, but for a beautiful moment in time, we maximized shareholder value, you know? And I think that that is, um, for me, something that we, we need to remember throughout and that I think Tim started his remarks with, with um, if there is no agreement, um, if there is no intent for anything to change, then I would say to the previous speaker, um, you know, all of all of what he says should be taken on board. But the issue here is we do need things to change. Um, we cannot go and continue, you know, with business as usual because companies have a big role to play in us achieving the the um, uh, the goals of the Green Deal, in us making sure that the planet doesn't warm up. Um, until temperatures we can no longer control and so forth. And therefore, yes, we are not going to introduce something that has no tooth, uh, teeth whatsoever and that doesn't change anything. That said, I think that all of the allegations, um, you know, I think that that they are a bit of a caricature. Um, the, the text absolutely speaks of a, an obligation of, of means rather than results, that's, that's clear. Um, we uh, talk about member states ensuring liability for where companies are directly linked to or where they have caused harm. Um, I don't think that is an odd thing to do because that is exactly the, the purpose of what we're doing here that now through making this mandatory that there are consequences to causing harm. Um, we don't talk about personal prosecution yet, so I'm not entirely sure we, where he gets that, although of course in a future proposal we might also see provisions on director's duties. Um, but I, I, I just don't see how all of what he said um, can be taken into account and then for there to still be a change for the better. And that is why we have tried to find a balance in which, of course, um, we make these measures proportional. We make sure that for SMEs there is special support. We talk about them um, uh, separately also. Um, and as was mentioned before too, I mean, for SMEs, the irony is that, of course, often they will know their supply chains that much better than multinationals because the supply chains might be less complex. Um, they have often said to me that they don't want a shadow regime that then makes it harder for them if and when they do want to grow. Um, they don't want there to be a chilling effect within the supply chains of bigger companies that then say, well, those SMEs are a black box and I'm going to cut them out. Um, I think all of those are very good reasons to include them in a proportional manner. Um, but cutting them out altogether, I think, is, is, is a manifesto for no change at all. 
Um, Lucrezia, thank you, Laura. Lucrezia, I'd like you also to comment in a, in a moment on the, the practicality, the points that were brought up by Bertram and Winnand. Um, but also, uh, I've heard in the last uh, few comments uh, talk about the implementation. Now, we know that national authorities will, will check if companies are enforcing these rules. Uh, they'd investigate complaints and possibly impose uh, penalties. Um, how can policymakers ensure that the new rules are going to be implemented uniformly across all member states, avoiding any possible um, national solo uh, efforts? Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, take Germany. Uh, SMEs, we know, are the backbone of the German, German economy. Germany is an export-led nation. Do you worry that enforcement may not be as strict in a country like Germany as in some other member states? No, not more than, uh, as you know, in, uh, for the Commission, it's uh, normal to adopt legislation uh, at European level that, uh, especially in, case, in cases where the legislation adopted is a directive, then it's uh, the provisions that are adopted at the European level need to be then implemented, transposed and further implemented at the national level. And there are uh, enforcement by the uh, various national authorities. So this is not something, um, nothing, not something new that we would do here. If we call on national authorities to uh, enforce this legislation. What is important though is that the legislation uh, sets out a clear framework that it gives uh, the um, clear guidance to the national authorities on what they have uh, what they have to do, which are the which is the um, enforcement uh, mechanism that we are thinking of. And I think the commissioner has already explained a couple of times that we are thinking about an administrative enforcement mechanism uh, and a civil. Um, a civil enforcement mechanism, civil liability enforcement mechanism, and we will also see how to combine eventually the two. Uh, and then, when presenting this, it, also, it is also equally important to explain also clearly in the legislations what could be the remedies that the national authorities could be could impose, and also uh, what. Um, also, the obligations for the companies should be clearly spelled out so that the companies have legal certainty and they know what they are, what the risks are that they are facing. In this way, we think that there will be, there is the possibility to create a legal framework that will ensure that the legislation is applied in in a way that creates a level playing field across the Union, and that is, in fact, creating a level playing field across the Union is also one of the main purposes of this proposal. And when we think about it, um, we, I mean, thinking about it and we think about the current context, we should also bear in mind that and there is uh, already legislation in some countries, in few European countries, there are discussions in other European countries to adopt a similar uh, legislation. So uh, 
in the absence of a, of a regulatory intervention from the Union, there will be indeed a different, uh, different regimes with which the European companies will have to comply with. And the value added of a Union intervention is exactly to make sure that there is a, a level playing field and one system that would be applied across the Union. Thank you, Lucrezia. I hear from uh, Teresa that the uh, Q&A is going wild. Uh, so we're going to go across to her and take our first set of audience questions. Teresa. Thank you, Ros. Indeed. Um, so our first question is for Lara uh, from Minju Seo. Uh, asks if, she, if you could elaborate on the specifics regarding exemptions for SMEs. Yeah. Um, exemptions for SMEs. For clarity, I also include micro-enterprises. So in, in principle, we said micro-enterprises, fine to, fine to have those excluded. For SMEs, what we've said is those that face risks in their value chain. So think of risk sectors like the garment industry, uh, conflict minerals, and so forth. Those should be included, but included in a proportionate way. Um, and also SMEs that are listed on stock exchanges should be included. Now, aside from the fact that we have said uh, measures should be commensurate, measure, measures should be uh, proportionate to the size, what we have also said, of course, is that um, this is a um, that, that there is the, the opportunity or the possibility for companies, and this includes large ones actually, that really believe that there are no risks in their supply chains and that they ought not to be affected by this, that they can publish a statement to that effect that essentially is uh, a comply or explain uh, statement. Not entirely the same, but um, in, in, in that sort of spirit. Um, so those are, in a nutshell, what we have foreseen for, for SMEs. Thank you very much, Lara, for the clarification indeed. Um, I have now a question for Lucrezia from uh, VJHLB. Uh, asks, what would be the consequence of non-compliance? Uh, who decides and how? As I was saying, we are looking, uh, first of all, we are still uh, analyzing what um, the various provisions of uh, our future uh, proposal. Uh, as I was saying, the main directions we are thinking of are administrative um, is an administrative uh, um, enforcement system that would include some uh, sanctions, penalties probably, and uh, uh, that would be applied at national level by uh, the national authorities, and then there would be uh, a, a civil liability. Uh, regime which would for which the normal civil uh, enforcement mechanism would apply involving so a judge etc what we are thinking of is uh, still the conditions to be the questions that we are still thinking of are uh, who would be legitimate to bring uh, such an action and under what conditions Thank you very much. We have a very popular question in the in the Q and a uh, for that I will direct to Lara. Um, why are specific due diligence requirements put forward uh, when horizontal legislation is prepared? Uh, is there a risk for duplication or overlap? Uh, could you repeat the question? Is the question why are we doing this at the same time as some 
individual member state initiatives? Exactly, yes. Um, we are doing this to avoid worse, I think, in terms of fragmentation. Um, the, uh, I mean, the, the, the reason that we're doing this is, is to, avo to avoid uh, harm to the environment and to people. But um, the reason that this is also being done now is to make sure that we don't end up with a uh, with the European Union in which 27 different legal regimes apply and companies uh, need to know each and every single one in order to do business on the on the internal market. So we're doing this to avoid to avoid fragmentation, to make sure that businesses know what is expected of them, uh, to give them legal clarity, um, and to to make sure that uh, those different legislative initiatives, but also the voluntary standards that are there, and also the certification mechanisms and and other um, voluntary um, uh, systems that are out there, like like eco labels and so forth, um, that that all of that isn't the, the the sort of jungle that it is now for businesses but that there's one clear regime uh, in uh, in the eu thank you lara we'll come back to the audience q a uh, a, a bit later but i i did want to um drill down on this question of liability which has been brought up in in recent comments um bertrand you were quite clear that you believe that uh, there is some sort of personal liability lara you uh, have indicated that 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 is um not necessarily uh the case um, now, I'm not sure we'll find a solution to that in, in today's um, debate, but uh, Tim and Ben, I would like to ask you both, how far do you think, as civil society, um, this should go? Do you envisage CEOs being prosecuted? Do you think there should be um, personal liability? Uh, Tim, please. Well, in a word, yes, uh, in that um, company owners should be responsible for the uh, for the impacts of their uh, company's business operations. That said, and, and that includes, of course, in their supply chains. I mean, that said, you know, I don't think anybody envisages a raft of uh, lawsuits, you know, as a result of this um, legislation. You know, what is important is that there is a mechanism for um, individuals that have been affected by uh, adversely affected in terms of their human rights, which often will be connected uh, with uh, environmental harms as well, because these are often you know very closely connected, that those individuals or communities have some course uh, for redress, uh, for remedy, and that that can be taken forwards. Now, I think that the way that the, uh, the the proposed legislation sets it out, the bar is quite high, uh, nonetheless, for establishing that a company in Europe uh, or a company that's operating in the European market has contributed to or directly caused uh, that adverse impact. So it's you know it's not like this is going to be a free for all where um, we're going to see um, uh, cases brought left, right, and centre. That's quite a, that's quite a high bar, but it means that in principle there is a recourse for communities or individuals that have been adversely impacted to seek some some measure of address. And ultimately, that may mean that uh, company owners, uh, CEOs should be should be held accountable. But I think you know it does strike me that this has been set out in a way which is um, is reasonable and is proportional. And I don't you know I don't think that any civil society 
you know, uh, actor which is looking at this is going to start thinking about SMEs in the first instances. Well, let's, you know, let's start uh, going after the SMEs. I mean, they're a bigger fish to fry, frankly. You know, the, it, this is going to be about looking at the absolutely most egregious uh, impacts, adverse impacts in the first instance. And, and taking those on. And, you know, this isn't going to be something that overnight you're going to see um, SME uh, CEOs suddenly hauled up in court. I, ju I just don't think that that's, you know, I think that's a complete red herring, frankly. It's just a straw man. And we, we just need to be careful. Let's be, you know, honest about the kind of um, uh, legal redress uh, that, this would, uh, that this would lead to. Okay, thank, thanks for that, Tim. Um, ben, obviously, any good legislation in the implementation process, it must have teeth. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, first of all, I, I do want to reiterate that uh, prevention is always better than the cure. That uh, also applies here. But if, if you then look at the enforcement strategy that uh, the Commission is proposing, it makes uh, a lot of sense. So on the one hand, indeed, uh, an administrative oversight, which in uh, the proposal by the parliament is relatively boilerplate in the way it's formulated. We, we've seen in plenty of other um, uh, similar instruments, uh, similar competent authorities uh, being mandated with investigative uh, powers uh, ex officio or on the basis of a complaint. And also if they find the problem to propose corrective actions and if necessary uh, to propose sanctions. So. Um, so I do want to dispel that this is uh, an extraordinary egregious regime on that level. And the same thing, it does want to also organize civil liability at the union level, which I think makes sense. I think it's the whole venture of the commission taking the driving seats and establishing rules across the union that need to be uniformly interpreted by national judges, but those are also union judges. That's how the union enforcement system uh, works makes a lot of sense. So in those egregious cases where there is actually harm that occurred that could have been prevented through exercising due diligence, it is logical that those victims have a way uh, to uh, to seize a judge and ask uh, for a compensatory or reparatory or other uh, um, compensation um, in front of that judge. So. For us, it seems actually quite quite um, um, a logical approach. I don't think that in at least the due diligence obligation, which remains a corporate obligation, given also the administrative and civil uh, nature, that this will result in mass prosecution against CEOs in their individual capacity, as was, I think, suggested by uh, Bertram. That's not what this legislation, or at least the signals that we hear from Mr. Reinders, as well as what we read from Parliament, is actually uh, underpinning. Okay, thanks, Ben. We've got a couple more excellent questions for, for Lara in, in particular, but before we go to those, Winant, I'd, li I'd like to bring um, you back in. Um, what you've just heard about liability and so on, are you reassured by that? Um, I'm afraid not, no. But maybe before answering, uh, I'm, I'm very critical, um, but that is because I want to be constructive. Uh, um, it must be a good proposal in the end. Um, it is not so that we think that nothing should change. Uh, there should certainly change a lot, and it should not be business as usual. 
And uh, there is also what Ben said, there has been a, a lot of thinking going on in business. A lot of changes have occurred and a lot of businesses are indeed thinking how to go further, how to move further. We don't want a box ticking exercise. The problem with the reasonings of Lara and Ben and Tom is, in my view, that they are strongly political reasonings. And that's also true, I think, for the majority in Parliament. But we are talking here about mandatory legislation. And that means that we need a legal reasoning also, whether this is going to work, yes or no. And I think the reasonings are concentrated on a voluntary approach, not on a mandatory approach. Uh, if in a voluntary approach, if you have a good story why you prioritized certain things and didn't do other things, then you that, that will be enough. But in a mandatory regime, take for example a, a big company with 80,000 suppliers. They can't change everything at the same time. So, for example, they decide to concentrate on human rights issues and they do a lot there. But then there is a a, a, a stakeholder who says, well, my, my, my interest is not human rights, my interest is environment or climate. And you haven't done anything there, and you have a mandatory obligation to do something. If that stakeholder goes to court, then the judge will say, yeah, you're right, there was an, a mandatory obligation to do something on climate, the company didn't do so, and that is why it is liable. So that's the problem. The, we, are, we are reasoning on voluntary approaches, but this is a mandatory system. It's totally different. Thank you, women. Um, Laura, you will get the chance to respond to that in a second, but I know that Bertram is itching to come uh, back in with a reaction. Bertram. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I want this change as well. Uh, to make that very, very clear. And so are all of our members. And we would like to bring our part and our efforts in there. So uh, this should be clear. And also, I'm not afraid of liability for my own actings. But I would, be, I would like to be liability for things I can really control. So there is a, a view till the horizon, which I can see even in my, in my uh, supply chain. And there are some things which are beyond the horizon. So like the one, when if I purchase chips in China, uh, I can see the chip factory. I can visit them, I can make my contract in. I do not have real access that should, would be beyond the horizon. Uh, where do they get their raisin? Where do they get the tin for the little contacts? And also think that SMEs, we do not purchase 100 million euros worth of chips every year. We purchase maybe 50 pieces, maybe 100 pieces. So the, the, what we can do is limited. So to be contrast, constructive, a risk-based effort would help. A tier one limited effort would help to, make, to enable me to sign papers, systems, and due diligence on things I really can control. And please do not overblow it. Uh, keep it limited to the most important rights that I can really check uh, and do not mix it up with too many issues like the Paris Climate Treaty. When I read the interview of Commissioner Reinders about the Paris Climate Treaty and other things, no limitations on company size, no restriction to tier one supplies. Uh, this would end up in things which are so large that we cannot fulfill it. And I want to fulfill it because we want that change. So being constructive, uh, as was said before, that's the issue, not blockade. Thank you, Bertram. We have, 
Ah, yes. Uh, thank you. We have a question now for Lara uh, from Yannick Rock. Uh, Lara, can you talk about how we have seen existing due diligence legislation, like in France, play out? Any lessons to be learned? Hmm. Um, I think the existing um, legislation, uh, be it in, in France or in the Netherlands or in the, the, the UK, um, or the, the proposal um, that now now is, is being talked about in Germany, I think those are all uh, good steps. Uh, I think they're all steps in the right direction. But I think the, the limitations with them are that they um, tend to only focus on one issue. So in my own country, the Netherlands, for instance, um, it's a law that is, a, that is about uh, child labor and avoiding uh, child labor. Um, in France, there is a law, but um, it is um, limited to the to the largest companies and not to the smaller ones. And so, most of them, I think, um, are either issue based or 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 size based. And I think that what we're doing here um, is something horizontal, something broad that includes many companies and that asks them to, to scan their entire value chains. And so, it is novel in in that way. Um, so, I would say that the lessons learned from that, insofar as we can tell because some of these pieces are, are new, but is that they don't uh, succeed in, in bringing about the change that we are all after. Um, and that they are, they are still, um, they, they, they are, I wouldn't say they are, they are toothless, uh, but that they don't go far enough uh, for us to, to, to achieve, um, you know, where we, uh, where we want to go. Thank you, Lara. I hear that Ben also has a reaction to this question. So Ben? Uh, no, it was a reaction to Bertram on indeed limiting the liability. And I think that's also maybe useful to clarify that the proposal by Ms. Walters or and the parliament as a whole actually limited li civil liability to uh, there where harm was caused or contributed. And the contribution scenarios of, of course, where it gets a bit larger than what, what you traditionally think as causing. But contribution is not necessarily a light balance either. The OCD even clarifies that that's not something that that needs to be a significant contribution. So, given that the liability is limited to the harm caused or contributed, you do automatically already in the proposal have uh, a quite a limited amount of, of of cases that that of course are subject to that liability regime there where it's caused and contributed. The, Administrative enforcement, of, of course, ideally should go further to also look at there where there's a failure to do due diligence as a whole. But on the harm-based civil liability, I think it's already quite limited. Thank you, Ben. Our... Yes, please. The problem of the, uh, of the text which is now in the parliament, and that is that the definitions of cause contribute and being directly linked to from the OECD guidelines, which were very precise, they are not respected in the Parliament's proposal. Um, you, you mentioned uh, that in uh, there is only responsibility for causing or contributing, that is in Article 19. The problem is that in Article 1, there is given a kind of definition of contribute and in this contributing, it is included acts of others um, and, and acts uh, as a consequence of being directly linked to. So it is precisely this uh, blurring of definitions from the OECD guidelines in this document, which create a big problem. 
if the exact definition of the OECD would be respected, a lot of problems would be avoided. Thank you. Thank you, Vinan. Uh, we have a question to Lucrezia now from Catarina Vieira. Uh, how is DigiJust working with DigiEnv, which is also proposing uh, due diligence in deforestation specifically? So how is this um, uh, cooperation going? Cooperation is going very well. And uh, the Commission, has, uh, as such, will make sure that all the initiatives that we will put forward will be very well coordinated uh, and uh, uh, consistent among themselves. Just to clarify, the way in which we see at our proposal on due diligence is uh, um, to look at it in an horizontal framework that will apply to all the sectors and that will set the, uh, yes, the basic framework for all the companies that are active in all these sectors. This does not uh, preclude then the possibility for the Commission to adopt uh, other initiatives that are sector-specific, like the one for deforestation, and that will, set, will apply to companies active in, um, in a certain sector in relation to certain risks and to, set, uh, to certain products. Um, there can be also other initiatives that can be of a legislative or non-legislative nature that can complete our initiative in the sense of uh, um, setting, setting out uh, possibilities for companies to do, to do more and to do also um, more specific, uh, to carry out also more specific uh, commitments. But the overall, uh, what we are very attentive at is that the overall uh, intervention stays coherent and uh, uh, consistent and is very well coordinated also on technical level. Thank you, Lucrezia. Um, Laura, que question for you on the timing, and I think Winant um, mentioned this in his opening statement, the timing of this legislation, as we know, it's due out. Uh, well, it's due to be proposed, sorry, in the second quarter uh, of this year. Right now, uh, we all know that almost all European companies, big, mid-sized, small, uh, are struggling to deal with or even are struggling to survive this terrible COVID-19 pandemic. Do you worry that this um, uh, uh, additional and, as has been suggested, not insignificant bureaucratic burden might be the final nail in the coffin for some companies who are simply not able to comply? Hmm. Um, I think we all worry about our companies and I think we all worry about the health of our economy and, and I think we all worry about um, the businesses that are, that are struggling during COVID. Um, I think that the timing of this won't mean that the two will coincide completely because there is some way to go before we have legislation on this, of course. Um, but equally, I don't think that the crisis is reason for us not to do anything. If anything, there is a strong link between the crisis and these value chains. Um, I think the, the, the first reason that we have a crisis like this, if you zoom out, is that we have disturbed ecosystems all around the world that make it easier for viruses to jump from, from animals to people. And that is because we have cities that are, that are growing and ecosystems being destroyed to make room for, for people. Um, so I think that there's an intrinsic link already that we shouldn't forget. Um, 
practically speaking, I think the COVID crisis also means that many companies will be looking at their supply chains and scanning them for vulnerabilities. Um, and I think they will be looking at, are we overly dependent on a certain source or a certain country? Are there things that we could be doing differently so that in a next crisis, um, we might not have the ruptures that we have seen now in the supply chains that have um, you know, that have, have caused economic losses as well. Um, and I think there, for instance, if you look at medical supplies, if you look at simple things like mouth masks, um, I think that these, these very complex uh, global value chains have shown that, you know, there's vulnerabilities that you could avoid by bringing some of these uh, parts of the business home or uh, perhaps not always depending on just-in-time management through the, the, the very uh, most vulnerable um, countries. So I don't think that COVID is a reason not for us to do it. I'm, I'm not naive about what our businesses um, are going through at the moment. Um, but I think that um, all of uh, all of these things interact. And I think um, uh, there is very good reason to be doing this and to be starting on this right now. Okay. Um, Bertram, let me come back to you about what you are currently doing to ensure that supply chains adhere to the highest possible um, ethical and environmental uh, standards. Um, now, this could be described, I guess, as self-regulation. Uh, I'd like to hear what Tim and Ben think about self-regulation. Civil society is typically not in favor of it. But um, Bertram, is, uh, you know, do you think what you're currently doing and what the, your members are doing uh, is okay? Uh, is self-regulation working in this case? Um, there are hard and soft factors. First of all, uh, again, we are not selling consumer goods. We are not selling a cheap T-shirt. Uh, we purchase all over the world in our distributed value chains uh, highly complicated parts and components. Uh, thus, we have value chains which are international uh, where we have high, high wages. Uh, and, and higher labor cost, and we are not having these uh, these free market uh, or, or these these international value chains because we just want to or because it's the cheapest. Sometimes it's uh, local contact, local uh, content demand. Sometimes it's proximity to our customers where they demand that we are in our factories close to them. Uh, and it's the market in terms of pricing of goods. Uh, uh, we will not see uh, a return of the whole value chain only in Europe. So what we do in my company, for example, we have code of conducts, uh, first of all, which we check. This is a hard factor. We have uh, also as a hard factor, this code of conducts is, a, is a, a part of my supply contracts. When I purchase, I make them a part of my supply chain. So they are man mandatory for my, for my suppliers. Um, and then there are soft factors. For example, if you visit a company, uh, uh, I will take care that, uh, of course, you, you have the vision, you see what's happening in the company, you see whether the environment is okay, but that's only a one-day impression. You see also, uh, does the owner of the company know his employees? Uh, stuff that, like these are soft factors. Uh, I think a risk-based attempt would be enough. I think, um, I do not think that we have big holes in the supply chain as far as I can see it. I repeat that. I would like the EU help me, maybe in, in whitelisting, as I said before. Uh, could we have whitelists like the EU itself, uh, maybe Canada, maybe New Zealand, where we do not have risk 
countries uh, to keep down the bureaucracy uh, and help me in, in not making me drill down the whole change. So thanks, Bertram. Tim, is this risk-based um, approach enough? Could self-regulation work here? Well, I mean, the, the whole rationale for the proposal is that the self-regulatory voluntary approach hasn't worked, and that's why we're here. So, I, you know, I don't think, you know, I think everybody accepts that there's real limitations to leaving companies to do their own thing, um, and, and we need to move some, towards something um, more mandatory. Um, just on this, uh, just if I can just pick up on a few things then that have been said. So one is on this uh, proposal of a, of a whitelist, and, you know, can we sort of, um, you know, say it's fine to source anything from, say, Europe or Canada or New Zealand, as was just suggested. I mean, in our experience, there are endemic uh, human rights violations and uh, ecological degradation um, here in Europe and every other rich country as well. So I don't think that you can have sort of blanket um, green light, you know, applying to whole countries. I don't think that that, that, that works. You know, we've documented... Um, Lots of cases uh, with human rights violations in the agriculture sector here in Europe, for example, you know, and, and, and the same would be the case of almost every country on earth. So I don't think it's about a country based list. And um, I think the the importance here is to go beyond those kind of quite crude measures to really get a sense of in the particular supply chain, in the particular context of your suppliers, could there be risks? And, you know, that it's about getting to know those suppliers rather than, um sort of using these quite crude indicators based on, you know, a country's GDP or, 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 or gross uh, or GDP per capita or something. Um, so that would be my re reflection there. And I, just on some of the other points that we've heard, you know, this idea to just limit to tier one, um, I think that would be pointless, genuinely, you know, for all, everything that we know about human rights and environmental risk in supply chains is that Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, this is occurring deep down in supply chains. It's not at the tier one level. If it was at the tier one level, it would be a lot easier um, to address, of course, but it's just unfortunate that that's not where the risks are. So if we were to just limit it to tier one, we may as well not bother. Um, but I think what I would say is that it's much better that a company, an SME, for example, or any other company, looks deep into one or two or a small number of supply chains where they do have greater leverage, where they uh, identify risks, but where they also have a greater... Uh, leverage over those uh, sub suppliers because of the orders that they're that they are um, buying of that particular material or for whatever other reason it would be better to look deeply into a into a smaller number of supply chains than look at everything just at tier one level and I think that's really what the legislation is trying to get at is getting you to really think about to prioritize not to try and do everything you know but to prioritize where are the risks greatest and to really go deep in those few areas and try to do something where you can make a difference. Ben, do you agree with that? Uh, overall, yes. Um, and, and maybe also to pick in on that, that point versus uh, voluntary initiatives versus uh, legislation. I think what is important is that, again, we, we prevent those impacts. And uh, until now, voluntary measures have not always, uh, or as a largely not, not delivered that. That's also what the DJ just study comes up. But what we believe is that once you put those initiatives in the shade of a legislation, those themselves might also become also much more uh, effective. Because take, for example, a company that needs to deal with so many suppliers. I think the example has been raised a few times in the debate. 
nothing says that uh, in the in assessing the risk, for example, that a company needs to do that alone. They could also share those assessments with other companies who source from the same facilities who are, if there's a legislation that applies to all companies, are also equally bound by uh, the same obligation. So there is some uh, economy of scale and that can only uh, help us in, in moving uh, uh, the preventative aspect forward. Um, I'll give one example. Laura mentioned in the beginning uh, the Rana Plaza accident. Well, in in result of that, there's also a collaboration under the Bangladesh Accord that that developed with 200 plus uh, retailers, which actively uh, identified uh, fire and building safety risks and addressed them. So collaborations, if they're accountable and if they they're uh, results oriented, can deliver. So that's what for us that legislation would place neatly uh, next to all those collaborative efforts. Okay, thank you, Ben. Um, I have a question for Winard first, and then I'd like Lara to respond to it as, as well. Um, do you think this legislation will put Europe and some European uh, companies at a disadvantage? Uh, if, if such legislation is not uh, imposed at a global level, uh, will the Chinese and perhaps even a post-Brexit UK somehow benefit from these uh, restrictions? In other words, how can we be sure that European companies are going to remain uh, internationally competitive under this legislation? Winard. Yeah, well, uh, I think um, answering this question um, uh, in, in general is, is very simple. Uh, yes. This legislation leads to um, additional administrative burdens and sometimes to substantial cost. So it, it will have an influence on the international competitive, posi uh, competitive position. There is no doubt. Uh, it is, of course, partly uh, limited by the fact that um, com uh, co companies from third countries active on the European market should also uh, comply with this legislation, so that is a very important element uh, which is in. Um, but once again, um, the fact that there is a disadvantage, um, it, it very much depends on what is the final result of the legislation. Is it workable, yes or no? And uh, there I would like to say once again, we are constructive. We, we want to improve the situation, we want to change the situation. Um, and, and we should come to a result which substantially improves the situation and at the same, same time does not lead to unbearable administrative costs. That is the aim. Thank you. Um, Lara, what's, uh, what's your thought on international competitiveness of European companies? Um, I think, as Vinan said, what's important here is that this is not only an obligation for European companies, this is an obligation for anyone who wants to do business on our internal market. And I think we shouldn't be shy about leveraging that market and recognizing the value of it, not only the value of the market and our consumers as such, but also our global power in setting those standards. I think in GDPR, for instance, we have seen what the effect of that legislation can be um, if it's seen as a as a sort of gold standard or as as measures that um, that can be copied elsewhere. Um, and I, I don't want to be too, you know, on the nose about this, but I think it was never the you know, the European way to beat our competitors by exploiting 
uh, people and planet. Now, that's a bit of a, of a caricature, perhaps. I mean, um, I'm not saying that all businesses do this, but I think there is a very good reason for us to do this now. And I think that it's important that we don't only oblige our own companies, but others too. Um, but even zooming in on those others that would want to make use of our market to provide goods or services, I think um, there aren't that many that do uh, business without any sort of inter inter intermediary um, or without a, a sort of office or head office even in, in Europe. Um, by way of example, even Alibaba, I think, has a European headquarters in Liège, I believe. Um, and that means that um, the, the, the competition aspect of it, absolutely, we need to be careful of that. We need to make sure that enforcement is good. I think there's also trade aspects here. We need to look at procurement. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a puzzle that is bigger than due diligence per se. Um, but I think our, our aim should stay the same. Um, and as I said, this is not something that only applies to European companies. Thank you, Laura. We are now reaching the, the final part of our debate, so I'll just go through some of our mo most popular questions from the audience. And the first one is to uh, Lucrezia. Um, I'm, I'm, apologies. The first one is actually to you, Laura, as well. So is there an intention to incentivize good behavior rather than uh, proposing punitive uh, provisions? Would you like me to take that first, or Lucrezia? Uh, Lara, Lucrezia, the question is for you. To incentivize. Um, if you're asking me, are there are there definitive carrots in this piece? Um, not as such. I think the the carrot here, or the the incentive for companies, is um, getting to know their supply chains better, which I think also can avoid. Um, can avoid damages, can avoid reputational risks, can avoid very costly uh, court cases and so forth. Um, I think there can also be an advantage in this in that if you look at certain companies, they've really, um, you know, mastered also um, their, 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 their strategies in terms of reaching consumers with their message of our, our products are, are ethical or, you know, our, our products are sustainable. Um, so I think there's a, a, a number of advantages along the way for companies to, uh, for when companies do this. Um, if you ask me, you know, do you, do you get a, a, a reward or a financial incentive? I think we've looked at financial assistance to SMEs, um, but incentives as such, or, or, or the whitelists, for instance, we were talking about um, for European companies themselves, um, no. But I think that the benefits for companies are in um, the, uh, the, the, the medium, the long-term effects of the, of the legislation here. Um, and I think they can be considerable. If you look at, for instance, um, you know, Tony Chocolonely is a Dutch chocolate make. Um, it's made it, you know, it's unique selling point that it sells chocolate that is slave free. Um, so I think that that it's been demonstrated that this can be done. It doesn't have to be a disadvantage. Needless to say, uh, we need to get the legislation right in order for that to happen. Thank you, Laura. We have a final question for Bertram. Um, and a member of our audience says that uh, risk-based due diligence seems fair and reasonable. What would businesses propose instead? Uh, I think it is fair. As I said before, I think it would be fair and reasonable if it consists of things I can really control and check. And I, 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 I often think there's a little misconception here uh, of how we work, because I heard several times you should get to know your, your supply chain better. Uh, 
we are not chocolate producers. We have highly complicated, uh, highly added value goods, which we sell to B2B customers. So uh, keeping with the questions, um, yes, if it's limited, like a code of conduct to things, I can really check, yes. Um, um, if it's if it's if if I can handle that, I like the idea of prior prioritization, as was said before. Not everything, uh, maybe a few things, and drill down. But that's not as I see the uh, legislation um, proposal right now. So risk base is okay, as long as it's as I will be able to handle it. Thank you, Bertram. Yes, Laura, go ahead, please. Um, no, I, I think that that Bertram was asking for things that he can really uh, that he can really practically do or check. But um, I think that what we're asking is practical. I uh, I don't uh, I wouldn't pretend we have put in all the details for that yet. But we are we are practical in that we're saying we want a company to make a risk assessment and so to look at what risks would be most salient and then as Tim said, drill down on the ones it believes are most salient to its particular business. We're asking you to, to map your value chain and zoom in on the places or the, the sectors that might be more risky. We're asking you to make a prioritization strategy and to match your business strategy with what you're doing on due diligence so that this doesn't end up in a sort of CSR silo somewhere else in the company. I think all of those things are practical things that, that can be done. Um, and I think that those are things that, that, that can be asked of you regardless of how much control you have over that supply chain. Because if there is limited control, then that is exactly what should be mentioned and what should be explained in that strategy that we're asking for. Bertram, you have 30 seconds maximum to reply to that. <laughs> I would like to offer what we do with the German government as well in a European level, an industry dialogue on the issues of the mechanical engineering here uh, be, uh, to make it feasible. We are open to discussions. We want to go the way, but we want to keep it feasible for all SME companies. That was 20 seconds, was it? So Sorry, offer of dialogue. <laughs> Well, we're, we're sadly out of time now. I would like to thank all of our panelists for their excellent contributions today. Uh, thank you also to our online audience for their questions and to VDMA for supporting uh, today's debate. At your active, we will follow the vote in Parliament tomorrow and continue to report on this very important uh, legislation. But in the meantime, uh, please feel free to continue the conversation on EA Debates, hashtag EA Debates. Your active will be back tomorrow at 3.30 with our next virtual conference on data privacy. But enjoy the rest of your day and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. <laughs>